morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are grateful for your word by which you have graciously revealed yourself to us over and over, testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that in the pages of this book we find a story, story, our story of how we have fallen from your glory because of our rebellion against you and because of your great love, how you sent this son, eternal son of yours to come and rescue us from darkness, rescue us from our own sin and the wrath for our sin, that you might bring us back to yourself. We're so grateful that you are that kind of God and that you have loved us to the extent that you would show yourself to us in these things, that you would rescue us. And this morning as we open your word, we we do so to celebrate these truths. And we would ask, Lord, that you might impress upon us once again the truthfulness of the things that we read here, that we might worship the Lord Jesus Christ truly as we celebrate Christmas pray these things in his name, because he has earned for us the right to speak to you, our Father. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, if you've not been at Providence before or for very long, I'll just inform you that on occasion we take a break from our normal custom, which is to just study straight through books of the Bible. A few times a year, we, we take a break from that and we, we focus on something very intentionally. And one of those times is the Sunday before Christmas. And so this morning, we'll be focusing our attention on the birth of Christ and what it means. And we'll begin, we'll begin our time together by reading from Luke chapter 2. So if you would please stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God. And we will begin reading in verse 1. We'll read through verse 20. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. May be seated. Some of us have read that story many times, heard it read many times. And I would suggest to you that we have heard that story more than we even think. Because the Bible tends to tell the same story over and over again. And as we read the Bible closely, we find patterns in the work of God, so that it seems if he is retelling the same story again and again. Let me give you one example of this kind of retelling of a story. There is a story in the Bible that's repeated over and over, and here's the basic framework of that story. To flee danger, God's people go into a foreign land where they are afflicted by God's enemies, but by a strong and mighty hand, God brings them out, plundering those enemies in the process. That story is told over and over. If we were to take time, we might go to Genesis 12, and we would see it told for the first time. In Genesis 12, we find that to flee famine, Abram and Sarai went to Egypt, where Pharaoh took Sarai as his own wife. God brought plagues upon Pharaoh, bringing Abram and Sarai out with all their possessions. The story is told again in Genesis 28. Jacob flees the murderous rage of Esau going to Padan Aram. And while he is there, he is afflicted in a sense by Laban, held captive in servitude. But by a mighty hand, God brings Jacob out of that land at Laban's expense, brings him into Canaan. As we continue reading in Genesis and into Exodus, we read the story again. In order to flee famine, Jacob's family goes to Egypt where they are enslaved for 400 years. But by many signs and wonders, God brings them out, plundering the Egyptians in the process. In in Ezra, in Nehemiah, we find that God, having sent His people into foreign captivity to purge them of their own idolatry and justice, by a strong and mighty hand, brings them out back to the promised land, moving their captors 
to pay for the rebuilding of their temple. Coming into the New Testament, we find Joseph in a dream to by taking Jesus into Egypt. When Herod is dead, God brings them out and back into the land, moving Matthew to quote Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt I call And by that quotation, Matthew associates this telling of the story with previous tellings of the story. You know, we, we might say that the entire incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is a telling of this story. Jesus, leaving heaven and coming into a foreign land, this earth, He was afflicted and killed, but by a strong and mighty hand, God led Him out of the tomb, leading a host of captives and giving gifts to men. This story is being retold even in our own lives right now. Because if we were to turn our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, we would find that the Apostle referred to us as sojourners and exiles in this world. We're living in a foreign land. And God's enemies here afflict us. One day, though, by a, strong, by a strong and mighty hand, He will bring us into the new heaven and new earth at the second coming of Christ, all the riches of heaven. The Bible tends to retell the over and over again. Now, we, we might say that with every iteration of, of that story, Prior to Christ, we, we consider all of the, of the tellings of that story prior to Christ, we could call them pre-tellings. And all of those after the incarnation, we could call them retellings. Or we, we might use the analogy of echoes. It is, it is as if Christ, the Word of God, sounds forth in His incarnation, sending echoes backward in time and forward in time so that we hear the same story, both preceding Him and following Him. Why does the Bible do this kind of pre-telling and retelling? Why do we read of these pre-echoes and echoes of the incarnation of Christ? Our, our wonderful God, by the inspiration of His Holy Spirit, He wants to show us that God is powerful, God is determined, God is faithful, and our hope in Christ is sure. God is powerful, God is determined, God is faithful, and our hope in Christ is sure. And I I don't know about you, but convinced and mindful of those things, by God's power, I can handle anything that this foreign land might throw at me. I am certain that I know how the story ends because I've, I've read it over and over again and I've been told how this iteration of the story that I'm now living, I've been told how it ends. And so I know that, that one day, the, the way things look around me right now, they're not going to look that way anymore, but I'm going to find myself in the new heaven and the new earth because God is powerful, He is determined, He's faithful, and my hope in Christ is sure. The Bible communicates those, those truths over and over with patterns even outside the one that I've just expressed to you, which we might call the Exodus pattern. But the, Bi- the Bible tells us, it pre-tells and retells the story of a miraculous birth that we just read about in Luke chapter 2. Preceding the birth of Christ, we hear pre-echoes, faint soundings 
calling our attention to a distant future miraculous birth and what it might be like. And following that birth of Christ, we find echoes that, uh, that follow into eternity. And once again, they show us God is powerful, God is determined, God is faithful, and our hope in Christ is sure. So this morning, we're going to do something a, a bit different. We're, we're not going to take apart Luke chapter 2, which is what we would typically do, but rather we're going to walk through the scriptures and look at eight miraculous births. Eight miraculous births. Before we look at the, at the first one, we want to set the stage somewhat by going back to the beginning, thinking back through the first chapters of, of Genesis. Our, our holy God created man to rule over His creation, to reflect His glory, and to enjoy His presence. Okay, let me say that one more time. God created man to rule over His creation, to reflect His glory, and to enjoy His presence. And so in Eden, man had everything he was di- designed to have, and he was everything that, that God designed him to be, with God right at the center. But, but all of that was lost when he rebelled against God. When he rebelled against God, man experienced spiritual death, which would be followed by eventual physical death. And, and Adam was separated from God, everything lost. The Bible teaches that his separation from God became our separation from God because we have followed him in his footsteps in rebelling against God. And so everything that you hate about this life is a result of sin entering the world. Your, your difficulty enjoying good things and, and especially enjoying God is a result of sin entering the world. And the difficulty of this life will only be replaced after we die with far worse difficulty as we, as we suffer the eternal wrath that we deserve because of our own rebellion against God. But Genesis chapter 3 reveals to us that even as the dust was still settling on Adam's rebellion, God promised a seed of the woman, that is an offspring of Eve, Genesis 3.15 tells us that there, there would come a seed of the woman, an offspring of Eve, to crush the head of the serpent. So, so he would come and make everything right and bring man back to God. So that he's no longer separated from God, God. God is at the center of man's existence. And he can be and have and live all the things that he was designed to be. And so with the, the, the opening chapters of the Bible, we, we, are, we are trained to anticipate the birth of a Savior. Pre-echoes of all kinds begin to forecast the, the birth of that Savior. And there are many that we could look at. We could look at Seth in Genesis 4. We could look at Moses in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. We could look at Maher Shalal Hashbaz in Isaiah 7 and 8. You may not have heard of Maher Shalal Hashbaz. He's better known as Emmanuel. In Isaiah 7 and 8. For the sake of time, we will just look at a few of these pre-echoes. And the first of them is in Genesis 17. So I would ask you to turn with me to Genesis 17. And if you were to take the time with each of these echoes that we're going to look at and, and read them in 
more fully in their context, I guess I could say. Read the chapters preceding, the chapters following. You would find so many more correspondences with the birth of Christ than we're going to have the time to look at this morning. We're just we're scraping the surface. We're just grabbing a few things here. Now, you're in chapter 17. Let me give you a little bit of context. Back in Genesis 12, God told His plan. He revealed His plan to bless all people through Abram and Sarai and a seed that would come from them. So this offspring of Abram is, is promised. There's only one problem. The very first thing that the Bible reveals to us about Sarai, Abram's wife, is this in Genesis 11.30. It reads, now Sarai was barren. She had no children. So she has a closed womb. Now on top of that, Abram and Sarai they're just too old to have children. Genesis chapter 18 reveals to us that Sarai was postmenopausal. That's a problem. You've got a woman here that doesn't ovulate. So, so this is not just an old closed womb, but it is an old closed dead womb. It would take a miracle for, for this child to be born. Chapter 16, Abram and Sarai, they're so unconvinced that this is even possible that they decide to help God fulfill his own promise by using a surrogate. And so Abram goes into Sarai's, at Sarai's request, goes into Sarai's handmaiden Hagar, impregnates her, and a son is born. His name is, his name is Ishmael, but that was not a miraculous birth, and it was not God's plan. That was man's way. It's not God's way. And so Ishmael is not going to be Abram's heir. Now let's begin reading in Genesis 17, 16. And I would encourage you as much as possible, try to soak in the elements of this passage because just like any echo, you're going to hear some of these things again. So here Yahweh speaking of Sarai, whom he has just renamed Sarah, he, he says in verse 16, I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So Abraham's incredulous. How is this even possible? One chapter later, Genesis 18, the Lord sends angels to reiterate this promise to Abraham and Sarai. And this time it's Sarah who is, who is incredulous. She, she laughs. Now, Listen to the power and determination of God as he responds. This is Genesis 18:14. The Lord responding to Sarah laughing at this idea. He says, "Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time next year, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son." So so we have the repeatedly reinforced promise of a miraculous birth. Those to whom that promise is made are incredulous that it could even be possible. 
God responds by saying, essentially, don't doubt me. God assigns a name to this person who's going to be born, and he gives the mission of that one who is to be born. Isaac will be the member of an eternal covenant. One year later, we find in the, in the following chapters, after 20-some-odd years of waiting, Sarah did indeed have a son just as God promised. God is powerful. He is determined. He is faithful. Now, the next miraculous birth comes in Judges 13. So flip over to Judges 13 with me. It's the birth of Samson. Now, the, the, the period of the Judges, we find as we read the whole book of Judges, it's easier to note this if you read it all in one sitting, but what we find is this repeating cycle. This is history happening over and over again where the people turn from worshiping Yahweh and instead they worship false gods. And to bring them back to Himself, God, God brings upon them judgment in the form of a foreign oppressor. Under those foreign oppressors, the people cry out to God for mercy. Then God raises up a judge or deliverer to redeem the, the people from their foreign oppressors. But then that judge dies and the people go back to their idolatry. And that happens over and over again in the book of Judges. Now, Again, as we, as we read in, in Judges 13, try to soak these elements up and listen again for what we heard just, just now in Genesis 17. Does, does this pre-echo, does it repeat any elements from Genesis 17? Are there any new elements that we might want to, to pay attention to? Judges 13, beginning in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now we have numerous parallels here between, between this pre-echo and the preceding pre-echo, but two new things that I would point out to you. First of all, Samson will be a Nazarite. If you're taking notes, you you can write down Numbers chapter 6, and you can read exhaustively about Nazarites, what it means to be a Nazarite in Numbers chapter 6. Essentially, it is this, to be a Nazarite is to be one set apart as holy unto the Lord. That's what Samson is supposed to be, set apart as holy unto the Lord. Now, second thing that we want to note is that as with Isaac, Samson is given a mission before he's even born. He will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. In other words, he's going to be a savior of his people. Now jump down to verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. 
Now, what's remarkable is that through all the moral mistakes that Samson makes in chapters 14 through 16, God, by His Holy Spirit, does indeed use Samson to wreak havoc upon the oppressors of his people. Significantly, we find at the end of the story, in chapter 16, if we were to go to into chapter 16, we, we would find that, that Samson's greatest act of salvation came about through his death. His greatest act of salvation came about through his death. So what elements might we, might we pick up in this pre-echo that we would want to carry forward as we, as we anticipate the coming seed of the woman? We might say that we, we, we would anticipate a spirit-empowered, holy unto the Lord, Savior through death. Now, further, we're, we're shown again that God is powerful, God is determined, God is faithful. And so even though the, the, the seed of the woman has not come yet, we, we're, we, are, we are being that faith is being cultivated as we see over and over that God does what He says He's going to do. Now, Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And there we, we find the miraculous birth of Samuel. And so as we read this passage again, just listen closely. We're, we're, we're listening to, for Elements of pre-echoes and, and maybe new, new things that we would want to incorporate as we're, as we're looking forward to the seed of the woman. What does this passage repeat and what does it add? Verse 1, 1 Samuel 1, 1. There was a certain man of Ramataim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Jump down to verse 10. She was deeply distressed. This is Hannah. Deeply distressed. Prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant... And remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Anything that we that sounds familiar from the the preceding echoes, there's that no razor thing, which which comes from the the Nazarite vow in in numbers six. So so no razor touching the head. That's shorthand for Nazarite. That's the same thing as as Samson. Now, in verse 19, we see that Yahweh answered Hannah's prayer. We can pick up in verse 20. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, the following narrative tells us what Samuel's mission would be. So if we were to keep reading in Samuel, we would find that, that 3.20 tells us he was a prophet 7.15 tells us he was a judge. 10.8 tells us he was a priest. So adding those elements to the the ones that we've already found, if we're we're accumulating these echoes and and preparing for the coming of the seed, the sounding of the Word of God, 
then, then we find that we have an agent of an eternal covenant that we're anticipating, an agent of, a, of an eternal covenant, a savior in death, set apart as holy to Yahweh, a prophet, a judge, a priest. And with each of these pre-echoes, it is, it's obvious. God has not forgotten about His Genesis 3 promise of a seed. Nothing will stop Him from keeping that promise at the appropriate time. With, with each miraculous birth, we get closer to the center of the echoes. God is powerful. He is determined. He is faithful. Now, let's go back to Luke. We'll go to Luke chapter 1, where we find a fourth miraculous birth. This time, the miraculous birth is John the Baptist. Again, we're listening for elements from previous echoes. We're introduced to his parents, John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then look at what verse 7 says. This is Luke 1, 7. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So we have an old, closed, dead womb. You know, we, we, we could make a rough outline of the rest of this, of this story and in Luke 1, just from what we've already heard, right? We, we essentially know what's going to happen because of the pre-echoes. Zechariah now, he, he was a priest, and so performing his duties at the temple, verse 11, he's at the temple, verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. Now, that, that's just like with the birth, the birth announcements of Isaac and Samson. He's standing right next, I'm sorry, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. In other words, he's at the temple as with Samuel's, Samuel's birth. Verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, when he saw the angel, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, just as with Isaac and Samuel. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, so we're, we're given a name, just like with Isaac and Samson and Samuel. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So no strong drink, that's the Nazarite vow, just like Samson and Samuel. The power of the Holy Spirit is going to, is going to fill him just like the power of the Holy Spirit stirred up Samson. Verse 16 is when the, the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of the angel, tells us what his mission will be. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what's, what's, what's his mission? The, the mission is to prepare the way of the coming Lord God, which, which indicates to us that the coming seed is, is not going to be just another man being born, just a normal man, but this is going to be a God-man. The Lord God is coming, and John is to prepare the way for him. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. It's almost like Zechariah is reading a cue card written for him by Abraham. And just as before, God keeps his promise. We, we, we read in verse 24 that Elizabeth conceives a son, and we read in verse 57 that John is born. 
It's like all, all of the pre-echoes, they coalesce with John. We have miraculous birth, miraculous birth, miraculous birth. And John is the final voice of anticipation. He's the forerunner of the very Word of God made flesh. The very Word of God that has sent out these pre-echoes and echoes. The seed of the woman is about to arrive. That's, that is, that's what John's birth is all about. He's preparing the way for the seed of the woman. Our fifth and central miraculous birth is foretold beginning in verse 26. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, we didn't look at Marher Shalal Hashbaz in Isaiah 7 and 8, but if we had, our internal cross-reference alarm would be going off right now because of that reference to a virgin in a birth narrative. Those things don't go together. Verse 28, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child, will, child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So we have, we have again, all the pre-echoes. They're, they're coalescing now in Jesus. And we hear so many of the elements that we've heard in the pre-echoes here in this announcement of the birth of Christ. So we have the seed. There's obvious correspondence with, with the pre-echoes. Yet with all that correspondence, there is a major escalation. This is not going to be a birth from a dead womb, but it's going to be a birth in the absence of a human father. This is a virgin. God Himself is going to bring about a conception by creating genetic material out of nothing. So, so, so this, this is not going to be a Son of God in the generic Old Testament sense, but, but this is the Son of God. This must be the Genesis 3.15 seed of the woman. And the parallel in Matthew 1 confirms by predicting to Joseph that this Jesus will save his people from their sins. Not the Philistines, but from their sins. Now we, we opened our time this morning by reading of his birth in, in Luke chapter 2. So we know that, that, that Mary did indeed conceive and Jesus was born, this, this Jesus who would save His people from their sins. Now, now, how will He save His people from their sins? If we were to condense the, the gospel narratives all down into a, a, a neat little ball, we would find that, that Jesus saves His sins in this way. 
the sins of His people were placed upon His shoulders and on the cross He suffered the wrath of God earned by them. He suffered that wrath in their place. And He died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. That is how He saves His people from their sins. Now that brings us to a sixth miraculous birth. Turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. You might think there is no birth narrative in Matthew 27 or 28. We might say in a literal sense that's the case, but many over the years have noted parallels between a closed womb and a tomb. Life doesn't belong there. And life certainly doesn't come out from there. And just as the miraculous births were predicted over and over, so Jesus Himself predicted over and over His own resurrection. And each of those predictions, just like the pre-echoes of the miraculous births, each of Jesus' prediction of His own resurrection, they were met with incredulity and misunderstanding. And in, in Matthew 27, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they want to seal that tomb up so that the disciples can't steal Jesus' dead body out of the tomb and make it look like Jesus has been raised from the dead. So look at 2765. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So like a, like a closed womb, the tomb is just sealed up tightly. They wanted to prevent a dead body from getting out. It didn't occur to them that a living Savior is going to come out. But, but just as God opened the wombs in these, these echoes and brought life inexplicably from the, the womb of Mary, so also He, by His angelic agents, opened the tomb and Christ came forth. In chapter 28, the two Marys, the two Marys went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. They arrived, they found the tomb Open and empty. And the angel told them in 28.6, look at 28.6, He's not here, for He has risen as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. So just as was promised, just as was promised, there is a resurrection from the dead. The resurrection proved that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient to cover the sins of men. And it gave him the right to give life, eternal life, to all he chooses. In other words, it's sounding forth again that God is powerful. He's determined. He's faithful. This Jesus, he is the promised seed. God promised that seed and the seed came and now the seed has accomplished his mission. Now, if you're, if you're taking notes, you might write down Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.18. Revelation 1.5. Revelation 1.5, and these are two references where we find that the apostles, as they think about the resurrection, they think of it as a birth because they refer to Jesus as the what from the dead? The firstborn from the dead and the firstborn of the dead. Now, the word firstborn implies that others will follow. Others will follow Christ in new life. That leads us to a seventh miraculous birth. So turn with me to John chapter 3. In John 3, Nicodemus goes to Jesus to probe a little bit about who Jesus is. 
and Jesus just cuts straight to the chase. John 3, 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you need a new birth in order to enter the kingdom. But Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus means. And and echoing the the incredulity from past miraculous births, Nicodemus replies in verse 4, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus explains in the following verses that the person dead in sins must have a second birth, a, a spiritual birth, born of the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus wants to know, and we as readers, as we're reading through John 3, we want to know, well, who receives this new birth? We could jump down to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So God's work, I'm sorry, Christ's work in life and death and resurrection is applied to the one who trusts in Him alone. That, that, that believer in Jesus Christ, that, that, that person who says, I am, not, I am not capable of reconciling myself to God. I, like Adam, have rebelled against God and I'm separated from Him. There's nothing that I can do about that. I only deserve wrath. Christ alone is the one who can reconcile me to God because of His righteous life and His atoning death, and I need that. The person who says all of that, that person is given new life in Christ and will enjoy all the blessings in the heavenly places with Christ. Now, you'll remember that back in Genesis, Adam died spiritually in the garden, and that death led to physical death. So spiritual death culminated in physical death for Adam. The new birth that that we've just looked at here very briefly in John chapter 3, this new birth that comes as, as, as a result of the Spirit's work in the believer, the new birth obviously counteracts that spiritual death of the garden But what of physical death? Of of what benefit is a new birth if it ends when you die? Well, remember that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. When we die, we will die, but when He returns, we will rise too. That's the final miraculous birth that we want to think about this morning. You could turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is where you'll find us. 1 Corinthians 15 addresses the claim by some that there is no resurrection from the dead among believers. For those who believe in Christ, it's fantastic. You get a new birth, but then you die and that's it. You stay dead. We can almost hear the, the incredulous questions from the echoes. This can't be. It's impossible for people to be raised from the dead. But Paul argues, and you could just scan through 1 Corinthians 15 and and, and pick up the language. Paul argues that because Christ has been raised, intended by God to be the first fruits from the dead, then those in Christ by faith also will be raised from the dead. And, And toward the end of the chapter, Paul begins to depict our dead, buried bodies, and we're all going to have them. We're all going to die. We're all going to be buried. All will be planted in the ground. And, 
and Paul uses the analogy that we're, we're going to be planted like seeds. Seeds that are going to be harvested at the second coming of Christ. And, and if the Bible sees Jesus' resurrection as, as, a, as a kind of birth, and He's the firstborn from the dead, then those who follow Him in death also follow Him in a birth to eternal physical life with new glorified imperishable bodies at His second coming. That is what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15. And if we were to turn over to, to the last chapters of Revelation, we would find there's going to be the birth of a new heaven and earth, a better Eden where we will all spend eternity with Him. And listen, this is our great hope. This is the reason to celebrate Christmas. is because of these echoes that come after the birth of Christ. If, if Jesus did not die, and if Jesus was not raised from the dead, and, and if all of that could not be applied to us in the new birth and our being raised from the dead, there's no reason, there's no reason to celebrate Christmas. But because it is true, we have great reason for joy. Because th- this is our great hope, that, that what sin destroyed in the garden will all be made new. That though we lost everything in Eden, we will spend eternity with Him. That though this life of brokenness plagues us, we all feel it all the time, and and undoubtedly many of us brought some of that brokenness with us this morning, lamenting it, wondering, why is this? The truths that we've seen, and, and in particular what awaits us, we know that though this life of brokenness plagues us, It is not the end of the story. A new creation awaits. And and all of the the echoes of the past, they call out to us in our current life and they proclaim to us, you can know that glory awaits with Christ forever. Just look at the past. See what He's done over and over. He has shown over and over that He is powerful He is determined, He is faithful, and therefore our hope in Christ is sure. So as we celebrate His miraculous birth in the coming days, in the context of our current brokenness and troubles, let us us hear these echoes emanating forward and backward in time. Let us hear those echoes moving us to interpret our today in light of God's character and our hope in Christ. What what could possibly prevent joy if we believe these things? Now, some of you here this morning may have heard things this morning that you've you've never heard before. You have heard what, what we around here call the good news. The good news begins with some bad news, which is that we're all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God because of our rebellion against Him. We all deserve to be separated from Him eternally in hell. That's that's, that's the bad news part. It's the worst news imaginable. But the good news is that God from, from the very beginning promised to rescue us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. Sending Jesus Christ not just to be born, but to live a perfect life in our place and to die an atoning death in our place and to be raised from the dead so that all those who repent of their sin that's turn away from, from, from their own way and follow Him in faith 
they receive eternal life in Him and they will spend all, all eternity enjoying His presence with all the blessings in the heavenly places. If you have any questions about anything that you've heard this morning, if you're sitting around people who can answer those questions, the elders also would love to talk to you. But please don't leave this place this morning not having an actual reason to celebrate Christmas. Because you can. The Lord Jesus calls out to you this morning and says to you, repent and follow me and all that is mine will be yours. I'm going to pray and after I've prayed, we will spend a few minutes in silent reflection just contemplating what the Lord would have us to do with these things. Let's pray. Father, you are a God of great kindness, and it is astounding, first of all, that you would do these things for us, but also that you would so repeatedly remind us of them over and over in the Scriptures, pre-telling the story and retelling the story that we might see that Christ is central to all of human life, and we need Him desperately. We pray, Father, that if there are those here this morning who don't have Him, who have not turned from their sin and trusted in Him, that that they would do so today, that Christ would be theirs, that they would follow Him the rest of their lives into eternity and enjoy Him forever with the rest of us. Lord, those of us who have followed, followed Christ, we ask that, that these things would be on our minds and hearts in the coming days, even as we have several days before Christmas Eve and Christmas, and much busyness separates us from, from those days. Lord, in the busyness, help us to think that you are so obviously powerful and determined and faithful. And the birth of Christ and everything that he did for us in his incarnation indicates to us that our hope in him is secure. With these things in our minds, Lord, let us truly celebrate on Christmas Day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.